Welcome to Travels Free Time, the podcast made in partnership with Colograph. I'm Peter Moore. Today is the anniversary of one of the most dramatic days in political history. The day that Maximilien Robespierre fell from power in revolutionary France. In the late summer of 1793, a reign of terror began in revolutionary France. Day after day, carts or tumbrils would roll along the streets of Paris and provincial towns carrying the condemned to the guillotine. The idea was to violently purge the badness from French society, and the figure who drove so much of it was the 35-year-old bachelor lawyer from Arras, Maximilien Robespierre. Robespierre was one of the revolution's most charismatic and outstanding politicians. He was unstinting in his pursuit of his utopian ideals. As today's guest, Professor Colin Jones explains, when Robespierre's fall came, it was swift and complete. In his inventive new narrative, The Fall of Robespierre, Jones walks us through 24 hours in revolutionary Paris, searching for the shifts in mood and allegiance that brought the man they called incorruptible to his end. Colin Jones is Professor of History at Queen Mary University of London. The events he describes in this episode happened 227 years ago to the day. I will start off by saying, Colin Jones, a very warm welcome to Travels Through Time. I'm really pleased you've agreed to come on the podcast because you've got a tremendous story, a fascinating take on history for us today. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, uh, Peter. I'm delighted to be here. So where to start? Well, you've written the book, The Fall of Robespierre, and it's an interesting book on many different levels. It's a, it's a really creative book and it's a beautiful work of um, historical detection as well. I thought though, before we get into any of that, can we just start with the character who's at the centre of the book, Robespierre himself? You call him one of the revolution's most charismatic and outstanding politicians. When did you first come across him and how long has he played away in your imagination? That's a very interesting question. I think um, for most people, and I think for most English people who think about the French Revolution from an early age, they probably think of it through the terror, through A Tale of Two Cities, through the Scarlet Pimpernel, etc., etc. And when looking at the period of the terror, 1792 to 1794, this man, Robespierre, does come forward. He is the most... Um, as I say, he's charismatic in his way, although he he resisted the idea of charisma very much. But uh, uh, he is um, an outstanding speaker, uh, an inspiring speaker, who justifies the uh, the radical policies of this period, but also the violence associated with it, the terror, uh, the guillotine, the um, uh, shootings of um, enemies of the people, etc., etc. So in, uh, for many people in England, especially the French Revolution is, as uh, George Orwell once said, a, a pyramid of heads, you know, which actually picks up on some <laughs> of the cartoons at that period. But Robespierre seems to be uh, very important in that. What I think is one of those things which, you know, gets you attracted 
attracted to him is that um, he is um, a person of very great complexity and um, nuance, um, and that when you sort of dig at the surface, below the surface, you find things which you don't expect to find. The thought that, as many people have argued, that he's a a early run, a trial run in some ways for the totalitarian dictators of the 20th, 21st uh, centuries, looks very different when you look at uh, what, what he says and how he says it, particularly in the early period of the uh, of the revolution. He's the most, um, one of the most radical speakers in the first National Assembly from 1789. And he sticks up for the people. He sticks up. He's a whistleblower, if you like, against uh, corruption and um, inequality uh, in in the elite, but he sticks up for the idea of uh, popular sovereignty. He's for votes for for all, all men, uh, that is, but you know, you can't expect everything of people in the 1790s. And he has a social program uh, uh, favoring good welfare schemes. Uh, uh, He is uh, in favor actually of the abolition of the uh, death penalty. He consistently argues for the sort of thing I often say to uh, when I'm speaking on this to students, I say he's like a guardian reader in the early part of the uh, of the revolution. All the sort of social causes which one accepts as almost you know par for the course, if you like, the rights of man, uh, social welfare, uh, uh, greater equality, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, uh, voting patterns, you know, democracy. These are things that he sticks up for. It changes uh, from 1792 onwards. France is at war. Uh, and it's struggling, quite honestly. It's almost pulled apart. And he, what is so fascinating about him is that he sort of drifts across uh, to a much more powerful, much more authoritarian position, which in some ways is justified, he thinks, because, you know, you've got to win the war. You've got to uh, beat the counter-revolution if the revolution could deliver all those social uh, uh, and political goods. Uh, but on the other hand, it is a very strong contrast uh, between him. And, you know, this, these two aspects, um, if, if you look at p- historians who work on him, well, first of all, I should say that uh, he acts like a sort of black hole or a magnet. You know, when people are looking at the terror of French Revolution, generally, they get sort of sucked towards uh, Robespierre and get obsessed with him sometimes about what he was saying, what he thought and what he, you know, why, why it's important, according to Maximilien Robespierre. Um, so he has that sort of sort of great uh, I- 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 importance, but also historians tend to plump one way or the other. You know, there's a sort of, you know, he's great, uh, but he was obviously, you know, under perhaps he was under pressure, perhaps he was ill, perhaps he was sort of just putting everything on hold because he realised um, that um, uh, you know you had to win the war, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. On the other uh, the other hand, people say, well, you know, he was discovering parts of himself which were incredibly unpleasant, and he does do this sort of semi uh, proto totalitarian sort of focus of power upon himself. So. When I was doing the writing, the researching the book, I, I deliberately tried to resist that. And the, the book is really about how Parisians, uh, including him, obviously, in uh, in a single day uh, when he was overthrown, actually acted and acted politically and socially and just in a normal, normal way. And so I kept my sort of analysis of uh, Robespierre till quite late. I just focused on the other people in the National Convention, the, the Parisian people, the sans-culottes, just normal people in the street, etc., etc. And then I came back to him. And what I wanted to do was get a sense of him as he was seen at the time. And I think people did see something of that complexity and some of the ways in which I 
I, I talk about him on the day, I think hopefully have a bit, a bit more sort of perspective and also nuance uh, than some of the more black and white accounts that we have uh, at the moment. Mm. I think um, it, to me, he came across as even more fascinating because I knew him really in his um, in his revolutionary caricature image. But in um, your account, he's intense, he's utopian, he's very thin-skinned, he's melodramatic, he's a forceful orator, but he's nervous at the same time. He's completely lacking in any, any kind of practicality outside of politics, which is quite funny, almost. He seems to almost be on a different intellectual plane, and there's a good quote that you have from one of his rivals who said he couldn't boil an egg to save his life and um then there's this kind of sense of enigma isn't there as well so for example you say um while he's um treated as something of a celebrity receiving fan mail and he's recognized in the street and um and all of that um, people don't quite know what his mystique actually is why people are so magnetized towards him and and indeed his kind of um, sexual life is just, you know, a closed book, you say. So he's a mixture, isn't he, of being on show and an enigma, which I think is incredibly attractive. Yes, I, I thank you for that. I think you've picked up a number of the points that I did try and get across, uh, and some of them are uh, moderately new, uh, maybe even totally new, but funny enough to start with the one about uh, humour. A lot of people, when they read, uh, when they when they're working on Robespierre, they obviously read his speeches and um, fine, you know, get a sense of his ideas. What I try to do when re re reading his speeches, see how they actually went down in the National Assembly uh, or in the Jacobin Club, and uh, frankly, um, it is not all roses. You know, it's not everyone cheering uh, from the uh, rafters. He's often highly uh, criticised. In fact, he is has. It, thinness of skin as regards uh, his uh, his dignity, his self-respect. He he really, really finds it very difficult uh, to be laughed at. They 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 go on about his, his, his how his name is spelled uh, and they spell it as not Robespierre, but they put an R and sometimes an RT in the middle there uh, and imply that, in fact, he's related to an assassin of uh, an attempted assassin of Louis the Fifteenth, completely false. But they're sort of they realise that it gets under his skin, so they just tweak it every so often. And funnily enough, although people are too um, scared under the uh, period of the terror to to do that uh, out loud, you find that sort of thing coming up in newspapers. People are almost uh, doing sort of typographical resistance, if you like, keeping the sort of flame alive. So yeah, he takes himself so seriously, too seriously, perhaps. I think you know he's very very. Uh, demanding on himself. He works very hard, I'm sure, but he's pretty damn demanding on his colleagues and everyone else as well. Unlike just about anyone else, he's never run anything beforehand. He was a sort of freelance lawyer in Arras, in the provinces. He comes in, he's in the assembly, he never joins a committee, he never chairs a committee, he ne he's never a rapporteur on an affair. He doesn't really bring in very much uh, legislation, even though he speaks for a lot of, a lot of things. Abolition of slavery, he speaks for that, but it's is Danton rather than him who actually abolishes slavery in 1794. So he has this sort of slightly, you know, up in the air um, uh, atmosphere, uh, attitude, uh, if you like, which in some ways it's endearing. On the other hand, it is absolutely infuriating for most of his colleagues because they think, well, you know, um, 
there's us uh, slogging our guts out and at great personal uh, risk, you know, working 16, 18 hours a day, not sleeping properly, sleeping on a, a hammock in the corner of the Committee of Public Safety room, where Robespierre sort of um, not coming in much, uh, not coming at all, actually, the last six weeks before he's um, uh, 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 overthrown and just seeming to um, uh, use his position uh, almost as an independent speaker, even against his colleagues. So, you know, it's a sort of very nuanced uh, position. He's a very pure, he's very, um, very sort of dedicated uh, man and very demanding of himself. But his demands of the others sometimes are a little far and they find people find it very difficult to take. Yeah, for me, um, I was trying to explain the structure that you've used to a friend and the analogy I grasped for, which I think might be a useful one um, for people who are not familiar with this era of history, listeners, um, is a little bit like if you imagine the events of January 6th at the Capitol building in Washington this year. And if you followed all of the like kind of million little events that were going on from from different points of view. But if you take that kind of idea and um, place it into a historical context and add a lot more kind of uh, risk <laughs> because um, uh, people back then really were in fear of their lives. And as you said, the um, the extraordinary dramatic nature of um, revolution was so present, but it's quite nice that you manage at the same time as um, sketching this flow of power and the ebb and flow of power, I should say. Um, we get quite a nice little look at social history of the time as well. So we can learn, for example, that the um, typical breakfast of a prisoner in, in 1794 was cafe au lait, for example. Um, and then that's a piece of information that's kind of necessary because of the structure you use. And um, for that reason, and many more and more, I do commend you. But let's get on to um, the actual meat um, of the matter. And um, we'll get to it by asking you the question that I ask of everyone who comes on the podcast, which is if you could travel back through time, which year would you pick? And I think you're going to go much better than that because you're going to give us a day in the past. Yes, I am going to give a day. I, it must be said, uh, historians have noticed, uh, and in fact, contemporaries noticed in the 1790s that uh, the revolution acted in a way that time seemed to be going incredibly fast. You know, Someone says that... Uh, uh, five years of revolution is like 50 years of normality or before the uh, revolution. So this sense of speed, I think, is very much a revolutionary aspect, uh, feature. Uh, but as I say, I think this this particular day, a pivotal day in the French Revolution's uh, narrative, uh, is absolutely vital. So I thought I would go in and, and pick three moments um, from this day. The day is in the revolutionary calendar, it's the ninth of Thermidor, year two, year two of the Republic. Um, that is the way which historians often refer to it. But, it, but the, uh, the, the date that we would recognize, which is still sometimes used at the time, in fact, is the 27th of uh, July, 1794. Mm. Can I just um, do a bit of contextualizing as well, which might be useful for readers, because um, it will put this date into the broader sweep of... Um, the, the revolutionary story. So if we think of the storming of the Bastille, which is often seen as a kind of catalytic moment at the beginning, that was the 14th of July, 1789. Then you have the Declaration of the Rights of Man and of the Citizens, which comes later in that year, in the August. You have the nationalisation of the church in 1790. That 
um, horrifying moment for the British, particularly, or the Tories, we could say, when uh, the King Louis XVI is executed um, uh, during a kind of worries about his, um, well, I suppose he's just become a person who's um, inconvenient. That's in January 1793. And then you get the opening of this um, period, which we now remember as the Terror, which is uh, September 1793 to the moment, the day we get to now. And this is a time when um, maybe do you want to just actually, it'd be much better if you do this rather than me, just quickly characterise what the terror was and how we should think about it. Yes, I mean, in um, in the middle of 1793, the more radical um, section within the National Assembly combines with the popular movement within uh, Paris, the so-called sans-culotte uh, uh, movement. One of the first things they do is to um, uh, institute a new um, constitution in which for the first time in human history, actually, universal male suffrage is introduced. But they soon realized because of the crisis of the war, which is civil war, actually, as well as foreign war in the autumn of 1794, that has to be put on hold. And you need, France needs an emergency government. And this, this is usually referred to as the revolutionary government with a sense of revolutionary being an emergency government. So all the rights of man, are, which were put down, as you say, in 1789, are temporarily um, uh, uh, suspended so that uh, the state uh, and society can win the battle against uh, 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 foreign uh, uh, enemies, but also internal enemies as well. So if we get, for example, the focus of uh, authority, although the National Assembly is still there, but the focus of uh, power really is on the Committee of Public Safety, 12 deputies chosen, Robespierre is one of them, who really act as a war cabinet and also as a as a sort of ideas bank and an executive for introducing, ensuring that uh, the policies of revolutionary government are followed. Um, it introduces uh, radical social policies, welfare policies, a, a maximum of prices, which will mean urban consumers can afford to live, but also is aware that the violence and the threat of violence terror is vital to uh, success as well. So uh, within Paris, obviously, famously, uh, the, the guillotine is set up, which uh, is used against animus of the people. But then also uh, within the provinces of France, within the departments, civil war outbreaks uh, in the West, but also in the South, are crushed very, very brutally uh, indeed. So it's a sort of real sort of power uh, coercion uh, that's going on uh, uh, as well. So, yes, I, I, I want to start on, on 27th of July at midnight, really, on the midnight of the 26th, 27th, uh, that is, uh, in the bedroom of Maximilien Robespierre. Uh, the day previously uh, was the first time he had been back to the National Assembly uh, for uh, about six weeks. And he makes a very powerful speech attacking uh, the government. Um, and um, there's some opposition to this. It actually frightens people uh, that he seems to be ready to have a sort of coup d'etat uh, against the uh, government. Uh, we know that evening he goes to the Jacobin Club, where he's uh, a, a very much a celebrity, repeats the speech and people go wild in enthusiasm uh, uh, and all the rest of it. But what I found very interesting was that he goes back home and uh, after the Jacobin Club, he gets there about midnight and he tells his landlord, who's a fellow Jacobin, he said, don't worry, I know I've had some problems today, but tomorrow it's going to be OK because the National Assembly will support me. Now, some historians have argued that he knew what was coming, um, that even his some of his speech was a deliberate provocation 
towards his uh, overthrow or that it was almost a suicidal speech that he was uh, making because he knew no one would take it seriously. My feeling was uh, that um, uh, he basically knew what was going on. He did think he could salvage the day. He'd had his back against the wall many times in the past before. And he thought this was not business as usual, but a crisis that he could deal with. And it's very interesting that, you know, while all his... Um, the people in the National Assembly, who, who've, and uh, particularly in the Committee of Public Safety, who uh, realise what's going on are very, very fearful for their lives the next day. Then they start planning and plotting uh, against him. But as far as we know, and we know pretty well, and I think it's uh, certain that this is what happens, Robespierre goes to bed and he sleep, goes to sleep. And there is no planning, there is no plotting. The people uh, who uh, you would expect to be in his... Um, any uh, conspiracy or organization of uh, uh, a coup d'etat the next day, which one would expect him to be involved in, they they are completely uninvolved uh, as well. So you go into the day with Rob Smith thinking that he can pull things through. And he's, he's really trying to change horses in some ways in mid-revolution. He's come to power with lots of support from the popular movement and with lots of backing from more radical left-wing deputies in the National Assembly. But by ninth of Thermidor, he's thinking the problem the revolution is facing is that these radicals are going too far. Uh, they're putting off the people. They're sort of deterring the people and making them counter or making it easy for them to become counter-revolutionary. So really what the government needs is um, these people to be stopped in some ways and basically a new alliance in which Robespierre thinks he can broker with the more moderate members of the uh, National Assembly. He will realise, he thinks, or he hopes, and I think it is a bit hopeful, that what he's planning is, you know, very much in the in in in, in the sort of project of the of the French Revolution and uh, the way in which it was at that moment. And he, he's sort of trying to balance these things and to work out a way in which uh, the next day. Uh, it will work out in a way that he has, I say, jumped from one horse in way uh, to another, secured a different type of majority and uh, ensured that the way forward for not just himself, but the revolution. Yeah, there's um, an important point here I wanted to ask you about. He seems to, um, as I mentioned before, he's got this um, melodramatic streak in his character and he will often... Um, advertise the fact that he's going to die tomorrow, that his enemies are after him, that his life is short and he's given all to the Republic. Um, and I think that happens, is it at the Jacobin Club that night or in his speech? I can't remember which you can tell me in a moment, but um, I was trying to work out in your account, um, and I think I know what you might think, but how much of this is the theatre of the man who's using a, um, a very emotive card against his enemies and how much of it is pure nervousness. I mean, you, you did allude before to the fact that you've thought that he was, you know, someone who was, he'd, he'd retained control. But um, could you say something about that use of um, melodrama as a tactic in politics at that time for Robespierre? Yeah, certainly. I think that that type of very emotional commitment to the, uh, uh, to the revolutionary cause is not just Robespierre. It is a, a generational thing, almost a whole sort of Jacobin thing as well. You only have to look at something like David's um, tennis court oath to see all those sort of clenched fists and stiff upper lips and, you know, muscles bulging with determination. But Robespierre is a past master of this. 
Certain historians have looked at that speech which he made the previous night, which he actually, he gave first in the National Assembly, then he repeated it with knobs on it, in fact, in some ways, in the Jacobin Club in the, in the evening. Um, and in the Jacobin Club, he's even more explicit because he says, I think this is my suicide. You know, tomorrow, you, you'll, hopefully you will think good of me, but my enemies are too powerful. And in fact, it's David, the painter who is in the Jacobin Club and is a great fan of Robespierre, rushes forward and says, if you will drink um, hemlock, I will drink it with you uh, tomorrow. And so they, the tendency is to take that absolutely at face value and think, well, this guy is obviously putting himself into a... Uh, into a sort of semi-suicidal um, uh, mode here. But in fact, when you look at Robespierre's speeches way back into the revolution, even actually before the revolution as well, you see that type of um, uh, appeal to his own death in some ways is almost a signature gesture. It's not that others don't use it, but he uses it probably more uh, than others. And I do wonder uh, whether... Uh, the people who hear that uh, in the National Assembly on that uh, on that day, or even in the Jacobin Club, some of them are thinking, "Well, this is him crying wolf again." You know, this is, we've heard this story before. Yes, here he is. He's going to die the next day, and then, in fact, miraculously, he doesn't die, and he goes on and becomes more uh, more powerful. So, I think that you know, I don't think he is very self aware or self aware enough to really realise the extent to which he's performing. Uh, these emotions in a way which some people might think is actually rather actorly. I mean, he always, and the Jacobins generally make a tremendous thing about moral and political transparency. But you look at the way in which they talk, it's very, very performative as well, a very emotional, very sort of stirring way in, in which they speak. So I think Robespierre is very tied up in this. But on the other hand, there is a part of his his, his mind, I think, which is aware that, you know, he's not, he's not, giving in to suicide. He's a fighter. He's, he's been through these uh, crises before and pulled through, and he expects to pull through uh, the next day. Okay. Um, one question, because we're in uh, in his lodgings at the moment, let's just take a quick look around. You, you say that the furnishings are pretty sparse in his small rented upstairs room in the home of his Jacobin friend, Maurice Duplay. Um and it's quite an austere place. There's a table, there's a few chairs, there's a few books, there's lots of papers um, scattered around. Um, this is, of course, all recreated in the microhistory that you document. Um, was he living this life of, um, uh, I suppose, almost secular piety that he is proclaiming? Or, and, and I suppose this is the other part of this, um, the, the, the reason why people are worried about him is that he's becoming a tyrant and i think this is the charge that's put to him very soon how much um of him at this point do you think remains as he is known incorruptible uh, yes that that's a, you, you're putting your finger on one of the great um, difficult questions about robespierre that we have to understand which is um First of all, he does want more power. I don't think there's any doubt about that. He, he, but he, he wants more power because he believes that he is right, that he's speaking the message of the revolution in a purer and more un, 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 solid and in, uncorrupt and incorruptible way than anyone else. Uh, so he will be the guardian, if you like, of the popular uh, popular cause, which will mean that obviously he has a greater power uh, within the National Assembly. On the other hand, there is this austerity about him, as you say. He's not living uh, uh, the high life, exactly. I, he is, 
staying with in the home of a, a fellow Jacobin who people usually say he's a master cabinet maker, uh, which makes him sound uh, quite humble. In fact, he's a bit of a property, not a tycoon, but he owns considerable uh, property and uh, has a big rental income as well. And he lives quite comfortably, a very, you know, bourgeois life, we would say. He's a sans-culotte, if you like, but this is a pretty bourgeois life. And the women folk, uh, one of whom to which it's uh, alleged that Robespierre may have been engaged, look after him. They coddle him, if you like. They see him as this chap who can hardly, um, you know, can't look after himself. He needs to be cared for. And they act as a, 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 a almost a um, protective guard, cocooning him from the outside world. Uh, and they also make a, and they encourage a bit of a cult of uh, of him as well. So um, although his own room is very austere, as you say, books, papers, quite humble, quite un, unflashy in every way. The, uh, the downstairs in the living room of the Duplay, where he spends many of the evenings, there's a whole set of little uh, statuettes or portraits or whatever of uh, Robespierre. It's a whole celebrity industry, if you like, of knickknacks at this moment. And so there they play up to that. And he, he, I think, receives some of that. You know, he is a celebrity, even though he's not a celebrity who, um, he's a bit of a Greta Garbo of the, um, of celebrity for the 1790s. You know, Greta Garbo was saying, leave me alone, leave me alone. But he's actually walking around with his own spotlight on himself uh, as well. So it's a very complex uh, uh, situation. Okay, we're going to um, leave this scene, your first scene behind and go to your second one. Where, where have you chosen for your second of two scenes, uh, three scenes, please? Well, I've chosen in front of uh, the uh, Hotel de Ville. Those of you who know the know Paris will know the Hotel de Ville. It's about probably um, a kilometre and a half from the uh, Tuileries Palace, near to the Louvre, uh, to the east of uh, uh, Paris. But it's more uh, significantly the place where the municipal government, the city government, uh, uh, um, uh, are based. And it's the commune, the Paris commune is there. And um, the Paris Commune becomes, in the day, the uh, focus, the leading edge, if you like, of um, mobilization for Robespierre and against the National Assembly. So what happens is that in the National Assembly, um, up till about four o'clock, there's an attack on Robespierre and his couple of allies in the National Assembly. They are arrested and they're taken off to be imprisoned. The National Assembly think, job done done and dusted, go off and have dinner and uh, celebrate the overthrow and the arrest of uh, Robespierre and uh, let the revolution carry on without him. Um, but in fact, what happens is two things. One is that he's refused entry to a prison. So he's actually on the run in Paris and is soon taken under uh, the wing of some of the municipal police officials. But then also the mayor uh, of Paris and the commander of the French Parisian National Guard, a man called Ariel, um, in the nationalist in the uh, commune, realize what's happened, and they decide they will mobilize the, the people of Paris in, in a massive uh, um, protest to uh, uh, against the arrest of Robespierre, and they'll go to the National Assembly, uh, and they'll force the National Assembly to purge itself of the enemies uh, of Robespierre, and the sort of there'll be a, a coup d'état in some ways, which will do what Robespierre seemed to be threatening to do. Uh, but didn't seem to have got very organised on it uh, the previous previous night. So what I think is so fascinating that afternoon 
is that you get um, the commune trying to mobilize Paris, sending out orders to uh, the uh, local authorities within the 48 sections of Paris and also to the, the commander of the battalion, uh, the National Guard battalion in each of the um, uh, of the sections to bring a massive force together and they start gathering from the middle of the afternoon uh, on, on, on the day outside the Hotel de Ville and bring a lot of cannon. It's a very, very big force. Thousands, probably 3,000, 3,500 people plus cannon are there in the early part of the evening. What then happens is that uh, the National Assembly go back at seven o'clock and suddenly realize that this ha hasn't been all over. And uh, you get a very dramatic uh, sequence of events, which I won't go into uh, now, but essentially what culminates at nine o'clock where they realize that uh, the, the commune will be coming for them pretty soon. And so they had better counter mobilize. And so you get this, um, uh, attempt to counter-mobilize stories, messages going out from the convention to each of the sections saying, stay loyal, don't trust the commune. These are, don't trust uh, uh, Robespierre. Robespierre was a, was a conspirator against the, the race publica. Because in fact, these, these soldiers, these national guardsmen, they've been brought there very early on in the day and they're not quite sure what's going on. They're, you know, we, we have a lot of, story, of uh, stories from them and accounts of the day next, uh, the, in the following days which come forward. It does seem they genuinely lack of, genuine lack of clarity about what had happened, who was responsible uh, and all the rest of it. And so you find these um, National Guardsmen just talking to each other in the, in the uh, Place de l'Hôtel de Ville. You know, it, historians often say in the period of the terror, there's no public opinion, no public sphere. People are terrified. They can't speak to anyone else. But what I found so interesting uh, when looking at, at this day up close is that you find on the on the Place de la Maison Commune, Place de l'Hôtel de Ville, these uh, companies of National Guardsmen, and they're all talking amongst each other. And they're saying, well, what is going on? And what we shouldn't be here. You know, we, we should be obeying the National Assembly. That's, well, that's the one that's got elected uh, uh, by, by the, uh, the nation. We, you, maybe the commune is actually uh, not to be trusted. And they say Robespierre is such a patriot, but where has he been uh, the last six, um, uh, six weeks? So you've got a genuine decision making uh, uh, that has to be going on right across the whole of Paris. Parisians are faced by this stark choice, convention, national convention, what they stand for, the nation, uh, against you know, the revolutionary, the radical, and the celebrity politician uh, that is uh, Maximilien Robespierre. And what you find, and it's very fascinating to see the way in which this happens in a piecemeal way, but you, know, you see a wave generally happening by midnight of people essentially leaving uh, leaving the Maison Commune and not going home, as some historians have argued, and you know, pulling the sh pulling the sheets over their head and pretending nothing's going on. But they actually join the other side. They actually go over to the side of the of the convention, and the convention by after midnight knows that they've got a big force around them defending themselves. If the commune started bringing their own troops uh, uh, their way. Uh, but then they realize they've got to go looking for the commune. They've got, in other words, to get out there uh, and uh, defeat the commune and, and uh, occupy the Maison Commune, occupy the Hôtel de Ville and capture Robespierre uh, before he can do them harm and mobilize the people against them. And that's what happens uh, essentially for the rest of the, uh, of the of the day. But what I like about why I've chosen this particular moment, because it's just a moment in which Parisians have to make a choice. And it's a, a really important choice, you know, whether they 
they support national politics, the National Assembly, or whether they go with the more radical uh, deputy, uh, but also the sort of air of mystery about where where Robespierre would actually uh, lead lead them. So there's a sort of risk averse element in there, in some ways, which leads them to support the National Convention. It's very interesting to me that you chose this particular moment because it seems to go to the heart of the argument that you're making in the book, as you just described them, because there is, in my reading of um, this day, usually a focus on this dramatic catalytic moment, you know, in the convention hall earlier in the day when Talion interrupts Saint-Jean's speech, you know, and... And from there, the dynamics change and there's a sense of um, Robespierre losing any any sort of power. And of course, whilst that's interesting, it's nice to take a step um, back to examine what you describe um, as the outcome of the day, depending on a million micro decisions made by all Parisians across the expanse of the city, which in a way <laughs> captures the revolutionary ethic really nicely. It would be difficult to think of another day in the hall of the 18th century on which the sources are so copious and dense. That's what you write in, in the book. And it's, um, it's a good one to ponder for sure. Hello, it's Artemis. At Travels Through Time, we're incredibly proud to be partnering with Jordan Lloyd and Colourgraph. Jordan is one of the world's leading visual historians. Through his excellent craftsmanship, he brings black and white photographs of the past to life in startling colour and clarity. Jordan's extraordinary work, as well as that of his contemporaries, can be found on the website colourgraph.co. At colourgraph.co, you'll be able to explore the process and history behind the colourisation work, but most excitingly of all, you can also buy some of these beautiful photographs as museum-grade fine art prints. They make an unusual and striking present for that friend or family member of yours who loves the past, and they're an excellent addition to any room. Whether it's a colourised photograph of the US Capitol building from 1846, or a candid shot of the Beatles from 1964, you're pretty sure to find something that enchants you. I know I certainly have many times. It's hard to explain really over audio just how cool these prints are, so I encourage you to have a look for yourself at colorgraph.co. What's more, Travels Through Time listeners get 10% off when they enter the code TTT at the checkout. Okay, well, if that here in your second scene is... Um, is the moment of decision. Let's go to your third scene and see the story towards its climax. Where would you like to go next, please? I think, again, I will go to midnight, but I'll go to midnight at the end of the day and I'll, I'll focus on the... This time it's not Ma Maximilien Robespierre's bedroom, but it is a, a room, a committee room in the Hôtel de Ville. Uh, there's still a big assembly in the... Uh, in the uh, commune there of, uh, of people all uh, supporting the cause, but the leaders of the day have gone into a separate committee room. Robespierre was, as I mentioned before, um, uh, freed from prison. He didn't actually go into prison. He's picked up by the police administration, which take him to the police offices on the Ile de la Cité. And then the commune calls him and says, come to the commune and basically lead the lead the movement. It's very interesting, and it speaks to, a bit to what we were talking about earlier, is that it looks like Robespierre is very reluctant to do that. It's really only on the third appeal from the commune that he goes, and actually it's his brother who, who actually makes the appeal at that moment, so it's perhaps 
uh, fraternal uh, influence there uh, uh, as well. Because I think he realizes that if he puts himself at the head of an armed group attacking the convention, he will be seen as a you know political leader, as a sort of we would say in the nineteenth century, we would say as a Bonapartist uh, a figure. So he's actually rather reluctant to do that, I think, uh, even though he's sort of accepting. Uh, I think that um, obviously the commune will need to uh, purge the assembly, but he, he he wants to be a bit out of it, you know, advising them, pointing them in the direction, if you like, of the assembly, but not actually leading them. And when, we know that when he goes into the uh, commune hall initially, he actually doesn't make a big speech. In fact, people are uncertain whether he says anything much at all, and no one really has a although there's quite a lot of accounts of what happened on, in that meeting. Very few seem to know what he actually said, if anything. And he goes into this other uh, other room and we don't know much of what's going on there, but we do know that uh, he must be thinking what the heck is going on. Because I think when he comes to the, um, when he's brought to the, um, uh, the um, Maison Commune, which is about sort of 10, 10.30 uh, uh, at night. He's been told the people are massing, they're mobilizing, they're full on the square, the sections are, uh, are all behind you, the National Guard is behind you, we can do this. So it's a very sort of um, hopeful, can-do type of attitude that he's going into. Well, by midnight, if he's looking out from, that, from his window on the place, he will see that that place is becoming denuded. People are leaving in droves. There are very few people, far from the commune being a, a center of attraction for the popular movement, actually it's becoming a center of repulsion uh, as the people are going, uh, uh, are leaving. And so I think he's, he's contemplating wh where he and where the revolution is going at that time, I think. I, we, we, I obviously have a, speculated one could do nothing else obviously on this uh and you know robespierre it is ironic that robespierre who more than anyone else we think of as an embodiment of a voice in fact we know nothing virtually about a few sort of statements here and there which he makes for the whole of the day and so we don't know what he made of it and what he was exactly uh uh, uh planning but he he seems to be pretty um, um, marginal to the debates going on in the in that uh, committee room, and I think he's sort of trying to make sense of where now. I mean, uh, will the city, will the um, the convention be purged? Will the commune be strong enough that they can, uh, by force of arms, more or less, force the convention into getting rid of his enemies? What? What, what, what position will he hold then? How will they proceed? Will they have another national assembly, new elections, or will they move towards um, a different type of uh, social and political uh, arrangement? And I think he's um, contemplating these things and and is actually must be very, very disappointed because one of the great things, and I try and make this uh, point very strongly in, when talking about him throughout the book, is he is a great partisan, a great supporter of the idea of popular sovereignty. He believes in the people. He's always talking about the people. I don't think he knows the people terribly well, actually, as people, that is, as individuals. But he has this sort of very elevated sense of the people. And uh, under the terror, we get him getting a sense that, you know, there's good people and bad people. The bad people are the people we should be, you know, uh, mistrustful of. Well, I think he's probably seeing this um, night as the day in which the bad people win and the good people are probably going to uh, going to lose. And right at the end of the day, just uh, just after midnight, in fact, um, uh, one of his colleagues, uh, Couton, another of deputies, is brought in. He also has been released from prison, and he says straight away, "Well, you know, we, we've got a right to the army. We need the army on on side." Now, 
that is such an extraordinary thing for Robespierre to accept, because, you know, that seems to be saying we need military support rather than the people of Paris. But then what he actually uh, says is um, someone says, well, who, who, you know, in whose name are we going to sign this from? And uh, someone says, well, we sign it from the convention because we're the convention. The five of us who are deputies, the expelled deputies, are the convention. That's just a load of imposters uh, down the road in the uh, Tuileries uh, Palace. But Robespierre says, no, it has to be in the name of the people. And I think there's something rather wistful, uh, maybe you could say a bit um, uh, self-deluding about it, that, you know, this is a man who's lived with this idea of the good people, the people that 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 um, are going to make a new historic intervention in world uh, world history. Suddenly, you know, they 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 can't be trusted, and they are rising, but they're not rising for Robespierre. They're rising to defeat Robespierre, to defeat and to overthrow uh, uh, Robespierre. And I think he is facing up to the idea at midnight that his life will end. Um, did he try and commit suicide? As many say, was he shot in a struggle? Um, it's very, very unclear. What is certain is that um, uh, when the people, uh, the, um, the leaders of the, the convention's forces, National Guardsmen, arrive at the commune, they march straight up the strip, straight into the committee room. And in the fracas that's going on, a shot goes off and Robespierre is uh, wounded in the mouth. Uh, he actually is shot uh, in the jaw, takes out part of his, uh, part of his uh, uh, jaw. Uh, and he can't speak. You know, he's absolutely unable to uh, speak. They bind him, you know, bind his head together, essentially. Uh, he's given a, not even a proper trial because he's seen as an outlaw. He will be bundled together with uh, his uh, uh, supporters from the commune and those of other deputies from the assembly have supported him. They will be executed uh, the next day. But I think also, you know, he must be thinking of that moment, uh, you know, that similar to when... Um, when David uh, tried to embrace him the previous uh, day, when, you know, he says, well, I may die, but, you know, I do have a message for posterity. And as I said at the beginning, in some ways, some many elements of that message from the early Robespierre, not the Robespierre at the end, maybe, but the Robespierre at the early part of the revolution are still with us and they still have a power to sort of uh, inspire uh, and uh, uh, and to be values which we we most of us can feel really uh, strongly associated uh, with. So it's a very, you know, it's a story which uh, in some ways is a tragedy, like the Greeks say the tragedy, a unity of time, space and action, 24 hours in Paris, you know, all about the overthrow uh, of Robespierre. Uh, but that, that sort of fall from grace, I think, that fall from high estate, what I try and show in the story is also a, a sort of rise as well, a rise of the Parisian uh, people, a rising uh, uh, and a, an awakening of political consciousness of the importance of supporting uh, the National Convention over the Commune. Is there any at any point during this final sequence of events where um, where he... Um, I said, what's, what am I trying to say? Like that he um, emits any sort of anger or a sense of betrayal, because as you've described, he puts so much of his faith in the people. He embodies the people. Everything he does is for the betterment of the people. But yet the story of the, the day seems to me one of which the people don't come to rescue him. And he's left alone to um, receive a fate, which he, he must understand very well what's coming next. Um, is there any, I mean, the 
the historical equivalent that we're all very familiar with from from film, of course, is when you have this picture of the ranting Adolf Hitler and the and I know this is a different figure altogether, but that sense of the downfall, everything going wrong. Is there anything like that that you found in the sources, or is it? Well, if, yeah, no. If you'd allowed me a fourth uh, moment uh, rather than just the three, I would have actually chosen this moment because I think it's really significant. It's in the afternoon uh, or early evening, actually, when Robespierre is taken away from prison. He's taken to the police administration on the on the Ile de la Cité. It's quite clear he's completely discombobulated. He, he doesn't even know what's going on. He probably doesn't recognise the administrators all claiming to be his friends. But they know they've got to protect him. And they say, well, what we need is the battalion commander of the local section, the Cité section on the Ile de la Cité. Uh, he needs to be, you know, personally responsible for for Robespierre's safety. Now, this man is a man called Van Eck. Uh, I think he has originally a Dutch uh, 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 heritage, um, but he's a classic sans culotte. He has been a radical on the 14th of July, on the 10th of uh, August, 1793, with the overthrow of the king. He's been, you know, a constant, you know, good servant of the radical cause in the revolution. So he's absolutely. Uh, you know, sort of guy that you'd uh, Robespierre would uh, normally see as absolutely uh, the, the good people, if you like. Well, the, interestingly, what happens is the police administrators call this guy in and they say, do you recognize this, the deputy over there is Maximilian Robespierre and you, you, you're here to protect him? And this guy turns around and he says, Van Eck says to them, well, I've heard that he's arrested, but my job is to protect the institutions of the Republic rather than individuals. And this man has got to be, obviously, he's been arrested. And if he's free, then I'll support him. Well, this is not in the script for the people of Paris. And it's certainly not in the script for Robespierre, who goes absolutely wild. He says, great God, who have you appointed to look after me? It's a counter-revolutionary and an aristocrat. Well, anyone less counter-revolutionary and less aristocratic, it would be Van Eck, an absolutely pure uh, and uh, committed uh, sans-culotte. But I think it it's a very si significant moment that shows that Robespierre is completely you know, he's lost track. He's, he's adrift. He's just in a world and an element which he just cannot master or even begin to understand. And I think that's a, such a fantastically significant fall, if you like, uh, as you say, the downfall of Hitler, the downfall of, of Robespierre, where he realises that, you know, it's not, the people are not quite like he, he, he was expecting. And in fact, he's surrounded uh, by aristocrats and counter-revolutionaries. It's um it's a fascinating moment that and and really really well described. It's often said by historians. I know that this particular date, the twenty seventh of July, seventeen ninety four, or or nine Thermidor, year two, or Mulberry Day, as you you point out, is um is seen as a kind of um like a fulcrum or a, a pivotal point, I suppose, where you're until that time the revolutionary had been about a movement towards rag radicalism. And from that point onwards, things changed and um, it took a more conservative course. Um, is that correct as an interpretation in the broader sense? It, it's correct in the broader sense. In detail, it's, um, it needs a lot of nuancing because in fact, the people who did, who did uh, lead, the, lead the charge on the day uh, are from the left, and they think they've won. They think they've won, actually. They think, well, the terror can now proceed in a more regular way without Robespierre putting this, sp this spoke in. But in fact, what it does is unleashes um, 
tensions and pressures which have been contained, if you like, in uh, uh, up to the ninth of Thermidor, which then sort of burst out, explode outwards uh, and move in, in a situation where, again, everything gets very mobile and very fluid. Uh, and there's a gradual, uh, but not actually that gradual, soon it becomes rapid and accelerates movement away from the left to, uh, to the right. And what I try and say in the postscript of the of the book, really, and I just have to sketch this out because obviously it's another story, but there is another tragedy that's down the road after the ninth of Thermidor. Because if you take it that in some ways the hero of the the heroes of the ninth of Thermidor are the convention and then the people of Paris for overthrowing uh, Robespierre, what you find thereafter is that the people of Paris are massively let down by the convention. And in fact, the convention turns on the people of Paris removes all their, 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 their sort of rights and their political uh, um, uh, clubs and associations, their rights to meet, the no mayor of Paris, etc., etc. And to some extent, at the same time that it's scapegoating Robespierre, it's associating Robespierre with the, with the people in a way which actually did not, simply did not happen uh, on the night of Thermidor. But I think it's often in history, it's what happens next confuses our understanding of what actually happened in the first place. And I think it's one of those things where if you look through the prism of what happened next, what's called the Thermidorian reaction, you would say, well, obviously the night the Thermidor was about, you know, moving to the right. But actually it wasn't about moving to the right. It was actually uh, moving uh, um, to uh, accepting the radical uh, policies of the terror within the uh, National Assembly and supporting and for the people of Paris, uh, supporting the National uh, Convention. Uh, in a way which, you know, they saw an, as an, a political alliance, if you like, uh, which the assembly then uh, proceeds to renege on in the months following. Well, well, many reasons to go to the book, but that's um, yet another. I've got one last question for you, though, before we um, leave 1794 behind. And that is, if you could bring a memento back from this day in particular to have as some kind of reminder or a talisman or something um, to have today in 2021, what would you like? Well, I can tell you where it is, actually. It's on the wall in the um, in the Musée Carnavalet, the great uh, museum of the history of Paris, which has just reopened in the last uh, few months and where I was a few, uh, few weeks ago, uh, because on the wall is a, a very interesting uh, uh, document. And... Um, Basically, what it is, it's uh, a, a, an order that's written in that little committee room in the Maison Commune, probably about 2, 2 a.m. Uh, on that today, maybe a bit before, actually, uh, on the on the 10th, that is, on the, when Robespierre is there. And it basically calls on his section, which is the section of the peak, the section around the, the pikes, around the Place Vendôme, and it urges people to come and support the uh, commune. And um, what is so intriguing about this is that when you see the signatures of the other people on this committee, and when it gets to Robespierre, he writes R.O. and then he stops. And historians have said, well, you know, why, why did he stop? Why did he stop just write R.O.? We know, you know, people have, and I've seen a lot of his signatures <laughs> over the years. I don't think he ever uses an abbreviation like that before. So something's happened. Something has uh, has gone on, which has prevented him from um, uh, from uh, from completing his signature. Now the, the debate goes on uh, because right next to the RO is a blot, a black blot, a blot which now is black anyway. Is that ink, or is it blood? 
uh, and the story has gone is that that is um, Robespierre is signing this uh, this um, d uh, document to call um, the sans culotte to support the com commune when in bursts the uh, soldiers of the National Guards from the uh, convention and fire the shot and then the blood comes out and it's all over uh, that uh, uh, document. I believe that there has been some analysis of that in the past, but I, I think it probably could uh, do with a bit of DNA analysis to see whether it is ink or whether it is blood, actually. But I think it's a really interesting um, a moment in the revolution, uh, in, in that in that crisis. Because, and my take on the day is it probably isn't, in fact, blood, and it probably wasn't that moment, but that Robespierre has seen himself basically signing, as I was saying earlier, signing a message of uh, from a, a, a sort of a committee which is dedicated and which is leading a coup d'etat. And he's, he's, he recoils from that. He recoils from the, being a man of action. He wants not to be a man of action. He wants to support the people and all the rest of it. But he doesn't want to be the leader of the people. He doesn't want to be uh, uh, a Napoleon uh, Bonaparte, uh, despite the call to the uh, to the army uh, uh, later on. So I think in some ways I'd like that document because it's such a quizzical one and I could just uh, st stare at it endlessly and try and work out and uh, the balance of probability that it was one thing or, or, or the other. Well, it's a superb choice and, um, you know, slightly enigmatic. It, it's nice to have something so connected. I think handwriting is always so expressive of a character anyway. But there's, this is going to be the last recording of our season of recordings, which started right back in January. And uh, that was with Kate Moss. It was also in Paris. She was talking about St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre. So we started with a massacre. We've ended with an execution. Could you just tell us a little bit about uh, um, the, the very last moment um, for Robespierre? I imagine he went to the guillotine the next day. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. They they basically um, arrested him. They take him to the, um, the Tuileries Palace, the officers of the Committee of uh, General Security and Public uh, uh, Safety. He has by then and his supporters have been declared outlaws, which means they don't need a trial by the Revolutionary Tribunal. All they need is judges from the tribunal to officially recognise and have recognised them as who they are. Their identity is proven by witnesses who know them. They go the way that they've been sending people uh, for um, for the last uh, few months. They've put on a... Uh, uh, a, a number of uh, carriages and they take them and they decide they will take them to the Place de la Révolution, the Place of Place de la Concorde, because that is where Louis XVI, the last tyrant, if you like, the, the royal tyrant was executed. And he's, he's obviously in great pain. I mean, with, with this uh, shot in the jaw, which is, you know, he's bandaged around his head. And the story is that, uh, you know, first of all, everyone is cheering his execution, which, you know, is again, absolutely, the humiliation of the man is just absolutely unbelievable, really, must be absolutely extraordinary, uh, difficult to take. But then uh, he goes, walks up to the, um, uh, or, or is led up the steps towards the uh, guillotine, uh, and the executioner uh, allegedly uh, rips the bandage away from his uh, head, so there will be no problem with the blade hitting the back of the uh, neck and Robespierre is supposed to have emitted a sort of animal-like uh, scream which uh, pierces everyone's uh, um, uh, eardrums for, for, for a moment and he's dead and his head is held up and that's the end of Robespierre. Well let's bring this to a close with that moment. Colin Jones thank you very much for coming on Travels Through Time it's been a great pleasure talking to you. 
Thank you very much, Peter. I enjoyed it a lot. That was me, Peter Moore, talking to Professor Colin Jones about his brilliantly structured new book, The Fall of Robespierre, 24 Hours in Revolutionary Paris. You can find out more about it at our website, which is tttpodcast.com. As I mentioned at the end of this recording, this is the last episode in our current season. More than 100,000 of you have joined us for adventures to everywhere from Peruvian mountains to Chinese rivers. If you have enjoyed these recordings, please do leave us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. It'd be really, really appreciated. We're going to have a little summer holiday now, but we'll be back again in September to bring you more episodes with some of the world's very best historians and novelists. So from me, Violet, Artemis, Maria and John, stay safe and have a very happy summer. We'll be back very soon. Goodbye. Thomas, do you want to say goodbye to everyone? Bye-bye. Okay, that's from my little boy. Bye-bye.